economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, our special guest on our show today, Clara Jace. All right. So, Peter, tell us about our guest here. Well, wait, I want to start off with the story that... Clara applied for the Gortney Institute Professor of Economic Education and Research position, and I'm so thankful that she did. It turned out she was on a different timing for getting on the market, but she happened to have a friend named Peter Jacobson that she referred to the position, and that's how Peter came to join the Gortney Institute team. So we thought it'd be fun to have Clara on the show today and and learn more about her research and maybe this little podcast can help her get a job as she goes on the market this year because we are full right now at the Institute, even though we'd love to have somebody like Clara on. So, Yeah. So Clara, I first met at the, probably the math camp for George Mason University (laughs) for our PhD program. So Clara was in my cohort, same year. And Clara was someone in the cohort that everyone had to chase. She was one of those students who was always keeping on top of things and that, that people chased after. It was you and I'd say one other student in the cohort. And so Clara is an F.A. Hayek. She's a a PhD fellow with the F.A. Hayek program at George Mason University, as well as in the Mercatus Center. And so she's got both of those fellowships running simultaneously and then finishing up her PhD right now, just a very dynamic teacher and researcher. And so we've got her on today to talk about research. Clara, anything else about yourself that you want to say? Not really. Just thank you for having me. And I'm excited to talk about my research. Okay. So the, the main paper that we wanted to talk about today that we, we had kind of discussed back and forth was your paper on the School of Salamanca. But not many people, I don't think, know about the School of Salamanca. It's, it was kind of an odd one for me when you first brought it up. I hadn't heard of it before. So can you kind of tell us about it a little bit? What is the School of Salamanca? Right. So I first became interested in the School of Salamanca as an undergraduate, actually. I was taking a course on the history of economic thought with Dr. Michael Thomas at Creighton University. It was phenomenal. And I just remember being so fascinated by the fact that there's this group of professor priests who were Dominicans, they were Jesuits, they were Franciscans, so from all kind of stripes of Catholic circles. And they came together and they started writing treatises and letters to the king and just advice to merchants about their trade in the new world. And specifically, they came up with uh, defenses of private property and especially with regard to the merchants not being able to seize the private property of the natives in the the quote-unquote new world. And they came out against slavery and they came out in favor of low taxes and just all of these really kind of curious kind of modern economic topics but they were packaged in business ethics manuals, usually. And so I was so curious about why the School of Salamanca was writing about economics all the way back in the 16th century. So I started to... It was the the 16th century, so late 1500s, early 1600s or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And of course, uh, listeners, Adam Smith wrote his famous The Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations in 1776. So this is substantially earlier than who we call the father of economics with, with his work that he did. 
Right. So I quickly realized that there were a few other economists who had noted this. So Hayek is special and unique, obviously, in a lot of ways. And he also looked to the School of Salamanca as the forerunners of the economics that, that he espoused. Um, Schumpeter also really writes a very kind of praising things about them in his history of economic analysis. He says that they are indeed the founders of scientific economics. And if I could just share one of my favorite quotes, I think a faith and economics audience would be really interested in this perspective and actually would make a lot of sense. So Schumpeter says, quote, a preoccupation with the ethics of pricing is precisely one of the strongest motives a man can possibly have for analyzing actual market mechanisms. So it's the idea that if you really do care about getting to the heart and the truth, you know, of the issue and, and shining light on it, then you really want to understand, you know, just the, the nature of it, what's really going on here. So discovering economic laws through caring about the souls of the merchants and, and others. And, and so, probably but people that they don't know, right? So one of the things that I think is wonderful about the market system is these guys probably didn't know everyone on a personal level, but they saw the flourishing that these exchanges brought about for them and their families. And so I think that's where a lot of the economic analysis comes in is the impersonal nature of markets. People don't really have a good appreciation for the relationships that it helps create and foster and, and the trust that ultimately can go between people with it. Yes, no, I think that that's a beautiful point, actually, because they were writing sort of in defense of people in the new world who they are these new, you know, countries who they never met. And they didn't actually know hardly anything about, but they did know that there is, or they, they had faith, right? So they, they had faith that there's a consistent human nature, and that, you know, all men have have certain rights. And they said some of these rights are rights to property or rights to trade. For instance, they were against monopolies and trade that the king had erected. And so they're better known, actually, too, for their contributions to international law, human rights and philosophy and theology. So you're exactly right that it came from this more universal perspective and kind of marveling at how God's providence brings about these things, the, the things that take care of our daily needs. And were these people all priests or theologians of some sort, academics, I guess, for lack of a better word, or did they, you know, who were they? That's a great question. So it's kind of funny. They were professors. They, they were all religious brothers or priests. And some of them were very famous in Europe at the time, they had studied at the University of Paris. So the founder, Francisco de Vitoria, is notable for this. He learned scholasticism, the thought of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas at the University of Paris, and kind of imported it to Spain and started teaching all of these men kind of this really, I talk about in my paper too, it's kind of a forerunner to the, the rational choice approach in a way, because it's this very systematic kind of logical approach to questions. And they were teaching, so for the first time, really the sons of merchants were in the university. So they started teaching and getting to know a lot of these merchant families in Spain. And then they would also hear their confessions. So one of the almost, one of the largest roles, right? So for the Catholic priests is listening to the sins of kind of everyone in the city. And so there's a few interesting notes in some of the primary and secondary texts about how it was actually in discussing the questions that the merchants had come to them with in the confessional that they started to discover, you know, what is a just price, right? When can I charge interest? When, when is it too high or when is it unacceptable? Those types of questions. 
And so I see a lot of the paper as getting at a question of, well, you know, we have this group of, you know, priests coming and, and merchants demanding from them a certain service. But I see a lot of the paper asking the question, why? You know, why did this economic analysis arise the way it did and when it did? You know, what, what do you think about that? Do you, do you have an answer in the paper or, you know, a personal thought? What's your, what's your take on the question that you put forward in the paper? Right. No, that's exactly right, Peter. So the bulk of the paper is looking at the conditions of the time and also the incentives and information. So right with economics, we're always looking at what are the incentive flows? What are the information flows? Right. What are sorry, the incentive constraints? And so at this time, obviously, there's trade in the new world. And we know that the merchants were coming to these guys, this, this group for advice. But the king was also starting to, so there are a series of, of kings over this time of Spain, and they were starting to really kind of impose upon the church. So they were considering attacks on the clergy. They were considering, you know, we could say threatening their property rights, right? And also at this time in Europe, there was competition in the marketplace for Christianity. And so these schoolmen were faced with a situation where they really needed to kind of prove the value of, of their quote unquote brand right, to, to the merchants or to other groups in society. And so I use, just kind of more formally, I use insights from public choice and the economics of religion to kind of weave a narrative as to why this group of, of scholars uh, discovered economics and applied it in their kind of policy and also business ethics prescriptions. It's a very meta paper, isn't it? It's sort of <laughs> the, the economic analysis of economic analysis, basically. Yeah, it is. And I conclude with kind of kind of a, a wink at the end. I say, you know, I think that this market still exists today, right? So we can look at the supply and demand of economic analysis today and think about who are the consumers, who is demanding it, and think about how that shapes what is being produced. So I do think that the economic view of kind of the human person actually does apply to market and non-market settings. Well, and I, I assume they were pretty much pragmatist at this time. So you come in the 1600s, late 1500s, and it's the kings and queens from the course of history. And here they just had observed that property rights were working in their area for whatever set of circumstances was there. And then they continued to press that and say, oh, we're getting better results than what we see otherwise. And they were, I guess, academic in that. In, in pursuing why and kept asking the question why is uh, I'm guessing is that would that be your take on things that it was is, it was very much an observation some empiricism of wow something's working here no that's a great point so they were very concerned about the poor and I think that this drove a lot of their so they were close to the poor right so they they had to serve them in their apostolate but this drove a lot of their kind of criticisms of the king. So they said, high inflation, it, it's not going to hurt, you know, the king, he's paying off all of his debts. But what it does is it devalues whatever kind of property, whatever value that the poor people have. And also how obviously private property rights is the best kind of system for peace and for, for flourishing in a society. You're exactly right. It's, it's pragmatic. They they have some of these, some of the treatises actually have very detailed empirical notes. So the merchant, or sorry, the, the school of Salamanca, the scholars from the school of Salamanca would go to the markets, they would observe prices, they would observe trading. And they also moved the ball forward on that question of interest. So, and the just price. So they said, well, we're observing, right, the, 
the conditions of this market. And, and it looks like, you know, given these conditions, which we would say is a com competitive market today, this price is just, even if it's different from town to town, right? There's still this dynamism and there's still this, this trade that actually is legitimate. And then, you know, certain types of financial instruments that the traders were using for their transatlantic trade, which is very risky. Um, they said, those are okay. We don't need to be afraid of, you know, there are some legitimate reasons why you would charge interest, right? So it was very much born out of uh, reflection on human nature and also just on how markets actually work. They were very much on the ground. Some of them were even trading partners for the merchants. So the merchants would leave some of their you know, property or valuables or, or things with them. They would look after the shops while they would go out and then trade in the new world and then come back. So very, very close relationships there. Did you ever see or, or find evidence that they, there was pressure put on them either by merchants or, or rulers to do or proclaim sort of the things that they wanted proclaimed once they started to be known as like the, these providers of great information? That's another good point. So I have a little story about that, actually. I don't have many about the merchants pressuring the schoolmen, but I have to thank Dr. Peter Bedke for pointing me out or pointing me towards this story. One of the schoolmen had written, I think it's Juan de Mariana, but I might be mistaken on that. He had written a treatise on regicide. So early in his career, he had kind of, he had written, they were writing a lot about kind of political ideas as well. And he had essentially argued that regicide was legitimate and so killing of the king was legitimate in certain circumstances. And, and this, you know, obviously was controversial, but like the king didn't bat an eye. So it, you know, he continued to write, continued to write, but then he came out with a treatise on why inflation is, is wrong and the king shouldn't um, print money, right, to pay off his debts and the king was perpetually kind of bankrupt at this time. And all of a sudden he's an old man and he finds himself in prison. The king's threatening to burn their, some of their books. So actually a lot of their writings early on came under great scrutiny and, and threat. At the time to, to publish anything, you had to get the stamp of approval from the royal kind of printer. And so a lot of these things did come up with did face some fire, I would say, from, from the throne and also from the church. So it's not like these guys were you know, saying things that were just the same old, same old, they had to really make their case for why this was consistent with theology of the time and the philosophy. So, you know, they, they did go to great pains to defend their ideas. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. Um, as a teaser coming in, I just see history being repeated. And now here in this setting, uh, if you've got people who've got markets somewhat figured out and the prosperity and flourishing they can bring, You've got other people who don't understand the elites and the king who think that now they have more stuff and I'm going to make the world a better place by taking some of their stuff and helping out some other people, all the while not under, fully understanding that that will have some diminishing effects on the whole process to begin with. So we'll pick up there in just a bit. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. At the Gortney Institute, we keep our professors up to date on continuing education. Just this previous weekend, we attended the Free Market Forum. That's an annual event put on by Hillsdale College and learn from professionals in multiple disciplines about how we can sharpen our skills in the classroom in providing top-notch education. 
The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith, and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. All right, so let's kick off the second half. Justin, you had some deep thoughts as usual. Why don't we let you start off? So I have one, I have kind of a two-parter question. One is just to make sure that I understand what your paper was asserting. And then the other is a question about what that might say about our current situation. So I really, really liked the paper. And one of the things that I liked about it is something that, you know, Peter mentioned that it's, it's kind of a meta paper where economic analysis may generally tell us why something is produced in the market, where it is produced, given, you know, supply and demand and who wants to purchase it. And what, what I take at your paper does at least one part of your paper is take economic analysis itself and try to explain why the demand for economic analysis arose and to treat economic analysis itself as a good, which is subject to market demands. And is that correct so far? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. And then another thing that I thought was interesting that Peter brought up, I think Peter and Russ both brought this up is that, you know, since production usually is responsive to demand. And there might be a kind of conflict of interest between the people who are consuming economic analysis, that there might be some tension between the kinds of economic analysis that is desired by the king versus a merchant. And is that correct too? Yes. Yeah. I would just add one of the, and I know you guys all know this because you read the paper, but one of the examples that I use to illustrate this point that I think is helpful is the antitrust era. So uh, certain questions come under the scope of economic analysis at different times because of concerns, like you said, of certain groups. So we can call them interest groups or we can just you know, call them just groups in society who have conflicting kind of interests uh, uh, with regard to different policies. And so I draw this parallel with the antitrust era and say, well, at this time, economists were spending more time looking at these types of questions. And so similarly, you can see given the concerns of the merchants specifically, and also the actions of the king, the school of Salamanca was looking at these types of questions, right? Right. Well, given that that's the analysis of what was going on in the school of Salamanca, and then looking at our current situation today, do you see any kinds of distortions in the type of economic analysis that's being produced in the sense where you know, if we look at who is the consumer of economic analysis today, do you see any problems that could potentially arise in the same way that, say, the king was angry about economic analysis that said that was inflation was uh, immoral? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's a very good question. Um, a little difficult, but I would start by uh, kind of distinguishing between markets. So like you said, we can think of the king or the state as one particular market for economic analysis. And they are interested specifically in using it as an input for policy. So this is kind of the role of think tanks, right? We see um, a lot of these organizations uh, using kind of economic analysis um, in, a, in a really direct way, right? As, as a tool for some like really kind of pragmatic ends. Um, and so the types of, uh, in, in some ways, the, the types of analysis and of course the types of questions but we can even get into methodological kind of points, right? So they'll want to use different methodology um, when they're trying to answer a question maybe about policy versus um, if they have a behavioral economics question in it maybe for a firm or something like that. But the one thing I would, I would point out is I think 
I'll just, I'll give kind of the positive answer, which is I think that distortions arise when uh, economic analysis is not done kind of as Schumpeter would say with a preoccupation with the ethics of pricing. It's not done with a, a love for truth, but is rather done with a love for something else. Because I think that if you want to get to the heart of an issue, you have to be open. Um, and this is one of the things that I think um, having kind of a faith background has actually just helped me with economics, uh, strangely enough, because I'm not afraid of the truth, right? I feel like I can, I can trust wherever, uh, where the truth goes. Um, because I know who who is at the source of it, right? Whereas I think some groups, I would say there are distortions if we are afraid about where the truth might lead us um, in our economic analysis. Does that answer your question enough or would? Yeah. Um, would you also say that there might be a kind of inbuilt uh, corrective for bad economic analysis and that it might fail? And... Well, yes, certainly. I mean, uh, one of the... Um, kind of, uh, I would say, most unfortunate correctives that exist is that when ideas are implemented and we see the evidence from them in the long run. So, I mean, a very obvious example, um, we were talking about this during the break, but with Soviet family policy or just Soviet policy in general, right, there's an economic analysis undergirding uh, those reforms that ended up um, revealing their inaccuracy um, in the real world because they were inconsistent with actual uh, just truths, realities in, in this world. And so I think that um, the natural corrective, I would say, if we we're talking about policy, is the fact that it will eventually have these um, consequences that will become visible. Um, another corrective just in the profession that I think is extremely helpful and extremely important is um, friendships, but also just the, the peer kind of colleague, right? The whole network of um, keeping each other accountable because it's actually a strong incentive um, when you want to be accepted by your peers uh, to produce something that is worthy of acceptance, right? Seems to me the elephant in the room here is this COVID stuff. <laughs> the truth um, has been, uh, so one of the presenters at the Free Market Forum was a doctor who had some data um, about the effectiveness of HCL, I guess, early on. And then there's been some other things where he was directly censored off of Google and Facebook and, and other things. And um, it seems like the truth-seeking part isn't always there or can be obscured. And I think that's part of the dilemma we have today is that we have both sides of the fence arguing science but science, I, I think there is a little bit of a disconnect. I mean, scientists generally know what we're talking about, that we collect data, we do some, we get some evidence, that evidence is replicable by other peers uh, in the field so that it's verifiable. And so, but I think that's what the problem today is, is that I think that the truth is less important right now than in some cases, some political ends or attempted political ends. And I, I think that's a shame because we, we are not really being truthful in the sense of when we use the word science. And I, I think maybe that's less so, but that's where I kind of might want to direct it back to Clara that back in those days, was it less of an issue that way? Or did the king immediately and those in power start to want to get the scientists to say the right things or the things they wanted to hear? Uh, that's a good point. So I think, I, I really think that human nature is always the same. So in a sense, yes, there's always pressure. I mean, 
prison was one pressure that this whole yeah. experienced. And, and one way to think about kind of the analysis here and what you just described with, you know, this, this science of, of, right, diseases or pandemics broadly is that in a sense, the ivory tower universities or, or whatever we want to call them are upstream of culture, which are upstream, which is upstream of policy and politics. So I think taking our responsibility as teachers and researchers is extremely important. Um, one of my, um, I think it was G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors says something about how, or maybe C.S. Lewis actually, but anyway, so the, <laughs> the point that they make though, um, they both agreed on a lot was that the the really, really distorted ideas that led to Nazism in, in, in Germany right before World War II were actually born in the universities. They were born with men who had a pen and paper instead of, you know, by some right evil people who were actually uh, in the field. And so to take that responsibility really seriously. And I think what really helps too, we were talking about kind of uh, corrective checks on this um, earlier is to have overlapping communities. So the idea of overlapping jurisdiction, ju- jurisdictions is key one for economics or federalism is another way to kind of understand it, but also for individuals to have multiple claims, multiple communities that hold you accountable. So right for, for the school of Salamanca, it was not only their commitments in the university, not only their commitments right to their personal friends who were the merchants, but also their commitments to the church, also their duty to uh, serve the king, right? So they had all of these kind of competing demands. And I think that that's really healthy because then you don't have all of your eggs in one basket and you also have a lot of uh, different perspectives that you are, are listening to. And so today for, uh, for economists, I think that having wider circles too is important. What my question was, is what your faith background, did it help you write this paper or anything like that? Thanks for that question. That's, that's a good one. So Yes, I think just Christianity is the most fascinating thing. And so while I mean, I love economics, and it's I see it as right, the the tenets of economics are compatible with a lot of these things. What really drives me what really drove me in this interest was thinking about the importance of faith and economics together. So having both of these as um, things that we you know believe are true, and using that to shed light, right, shed light, find the truth in a certain issue. And again, like I said, not being afraid, I guess my faith background, (laughs) I was fine looking at, so using the public choice lens means that I'm looking at the school of Salamanca as self-interested or at least self-interested for the church's needs, right? So for the, the competitive situation that they were at in Europe at this time as something that's not bad, it's just a fact, right? So they had, they were, you know, humans. They, they weren't just all saints. They, you know, had some original sins. So maybe they had some even money interest here. We know that the school of Salamanca got paid in some instances to provide analysis and things like that for merchants, or they were selling, they were selling these manuals to merchants. So not being, you know, kind of, shy about those types of things I think has helped but yeah in general um just- so and just to uh, so being a Creighton you're, you're a card-carrying Catholic I guess just to be <laughs> clear here is that right and the Salmonica that was all Catholic-based organization correct yes so yes I'm definitely a Catholic and the school of Salamanca um, those members were all Catholics although I will add that they um, were in conversation with and influenced a lot of Protestant thinkers of the time there are some theories that they influenced Adam Smith down the road and part of the reason why this is so hard to kind of 
find hard evidence for is that uh, Protestants and Catholics weren't citing each other at the time. So mm -hmm. they would take direct kind of quotes from each other, but then they weren't giving giving the credit. Um, so things are better in some ways. Now that's interesting. Yeah, we're only 100 years out from Martin Luther, 1517 at this time. Well, actually, you said late 1500. So we're less than a 100 years out of the flip there. So. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's interesting, right? Competition, um, I, you know, it's, it's very healthy and it makes you better. But as we know, right, as we know from economics, competition is, is good. But it's also really important to trade, to be able to trade with, with one another. Okay. So, Clara, I was curious then kind of like panning out to the, to the furthest level for what our podcast title is. Is you sort of mentioned that you, you took an economic lens to your own faith, and so, you know, that that's something that's very like truth based and, and you weren't afraid to do that. What do you think is the relationship between faith and economics then? What sort of role should our faith play in our decision making and writing and teaching as economists? What, what's what's your perspective on that? Yes, Peter, that's a good question. So I can say a few things and then I could write an essay later about this. <laughs> it's, it's so important. So I definitely think we can can't be afraid to acknowledge that economic principles also influence religious organizations, right? I think that that's in incentive ways, right? So I have a paper right now, for instance, a working paper with Ennio Piano about how the church kind of balances the incentives of, of priests and the fact that their personal morality doesn't affect sacraments with seminary, with rigorous kind of seminary requirements. So I think that a, right, we can't be afraid to kind of uh, marry both of both of these things that we hold so dear. And B, I think we then should acknowledge that they positively influence one another. And not that, I don't want to say, right, so they are very separate, very much separate. And I love the way that you, you portray it uh, at the beginning of this podcast, you define each one. And I think that that kind of illuminates the issue, right? So we know that economics deals with things that we can only see and measure, so C.S. Lewis does, I know this is C.S. Lewis for sure. He has this line in the four loves. He says the higher builds upon the lower. So economics, I think, deals with the lower. It deals with things we can see and measure. And the higher is the thing that, where we can say grace builds on nature, for instance. Our faith is the thing that takes that for granted, right? And then elevates it. And so it's our way to access things that we know are real, we know are true, but we can't see or measure. And of course, they're always intervening on the material world. So we're able to actually get a lot of, a lot of truth just by looking um, with our economic lens at, at the world that we have around us. So yeah, so I, I, that, that would kind of be my answer, right? The, the don't be afraid. And then there's actually this really neat complementarity between the two. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it answers my question. Yeah, it was yours. It was yours to, to make. So, all right. Well, this has been great. Uh, any other closing comments here from the crew? Claire, it's been a pleasure having you on and learning about your work and, and really the history lessons as I've, I didn't really give a darn about history, frankly, uh, for most of my life. Once I started teaching full time and got involved with the Institute for Faith and Work and uh, Economics and doing the stuff that I do here at Ottawa, I've become more and more interested in economic history and certainly see the pendulum swing back and forth through the course of time with these principles that we hold near and dear. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. All right. And I, I couldn't help but think 
the way we close out the show is is a little bit of of my faith, one element of the faith and economics that we are called to be fruitful and multiply and make disciples of all nations. And I think that's, for me, one of the leading points of what economics help us do. We're called to use our skills and what economists call comparative advantage, the stuff that we're good at doing to hopefully go out and make those things happen in the world among us. So on behalf of the Gorton Institute, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you feel so inclined, a five-star rating really helps us climb the ranks and help other people find our material. So we can be found at the GortonInstitute.org on our website. There's a little donate button if you'd like to do that too. But other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.